Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful that you've brought us together today to worship you as a family of brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray that you would glorify yourself during this time of preaching and during this time of listening. pray that you would glorify yourself in the preaching. Help me to only speak that which is true, which is in accordance with your word. Help me to communicate which you would have us hear from this passage clearly to us today, effectively to us today. And please, Father, help us to value you and worship you well by listening closely to your word. Not listening as people who simply seek to understand your word better, but as people who truly seek to live in accordance with it. Help us, Father, to listen with an ear to doing, with an ear to changing our lives in accordance with your word. We pray, Father, that this morning you would conform us more to your image, and specifically as we contemplate the character of Festus, that you would help us to see the ways in which we are too much like Festus ourselves, in which we put our own position and our standing with others above people and above truth. We pray, Father, that you would do this for your glory in us, that you would show us our sin, that you would challenge us this morning, that you would convict us this morning. And that by your grace, you would help us to turn from our political and self-centered ways. And you would cause us to follow Jesus. We know that this type of life is not compatible with a life of Christian discipleship. And so we pray, Father, that for the sake of your own reflection in us, that you would sanctify us this morning, make us less like Festus and more like Jesus pray that you would do this by your spirit. We trust in you for that. We need you for that. We can't change on our own. We need you to change us. And so we pray that you would. And we pray that for anybody in here that doesn't truly know you, we pray that this morning would be the morning that they come to know you. And that for all those who do know you, that this morning would be a time for them to come to know you more and to be transformed by that as a result and to truly hear you speak to them through your word. All these things, Lord, we pray. For your magnification in us today. Amen. All right, if you're not already in Acts 25, you can go ahead and open up there right now. We're going to talk about political people today. That's the title of the sermon, Political People. And by that, I don't mean that we're going to talk about Gavin Newsom or Joe Biden, at least not explicitly. Although some of what I say, uh, some of what we see today could apply to them too. When I use that phrase, political people, I'm not referring to people in positions of authority or to people who hold a political office. There's nothing wrong with being either of those, by the way. And there's actually much to say about Christians pursuing political careers. Politics is not a bad thing. What I'm referring to is a kind of person, a kind of person who, put, who prizes their possession relative to others too much. What I'm referring to by political person, I'm using it in the unique sense of someone who values their position relative to others too much, even at the expense of righteousness. This kind of person plays an important role in this section of Acts. Our governor from last week, Felix, fits this profile. And our governor from this week's passage, Festus, fits this profile. And today, I want to take some time to look at this profile more closely. 
We've been working through the book of Acts. We've made it now to Acts chapter 25. And to catch us up to speed again in Acts 21, we saw the Apostle Paul rioted in the temple in Jerusalem. And he was rescued by the Roman tribune Lysias and eventually transferred to Governor Felix in Caesarea as a way to escape a plot that the Jews had hatched against his life. He was probably staying in what was formerly Herod's palace, and he was tried before Governor Felix only to have Felix postpone his case. Felix likely recognized that Paul was innocent, but he kept Paul detained, possibly for two years, because he hoped to get a bribe out of him. Even after Felix left office, he kept Paul in chains as a way to curry favor with the Jews. But Paul's detention did not stop him from witnessing. He was able to speak with both Felix and his wife Drusilla about faith in Christ, which involves righteous conduct and self-control, both of which matter in the coming judgment, as we discussed last week. Felix and Drusilla needed to hear this. In God's providence, our Lord used even the apostles' chains to position Paul in front of the people and the places that he wanted. And our story today picks up with a new governor, Festus. And with a new political figure comes new hope for justice. Luke develops many of the same themes as before. He demonstrates how God providentially accomplishes his purposes through Paul's chains. God uses Paul's imprisonment to bear witness before rulers and to get Paul to Rome, working through the political mess to accomplish his redemptive purposes. And Luke's also making it clear in his narrative that the apostle is innocent. Given Paul's significant role in the early church and especially in the mission to the Gentiles, it may have been important for Luke to set the record straight on Paul's reputation. His reputation could have reflected on his ministry and perhaps even on Christianity in some ways. So Luke's account vindicates Paul against all false accusations. It shows us that Paul's ongoing imprisonment is not his fault. Instead, it's the product, at least in part, of political maneuvering. It wasn't because Paul lacked innocence. Political people were the problem, or at least part of the problem. This story, I think, reflects the truth about political people well. And it's a truth worth considering for us, as I think there may be more of Festus in you and me than we might like to admit or see. In this passage, we're going to see two things about positionally-minded people, two things that positionally-minded people do. First, political people sacrifice others. And second, political people spin stories. Political people sacrifice others, and political people spin stories. The conclusion that I want us to draw from the story today is simple. Followers of Jesus cannot be positionally minded. We cannot be political people in the sense of valuing our standing with others more than righteousness. An inordinate focus on position is incompatible with Christianity. 
And I hope this morning that as you see a political person like Festus in action, that you'll feel the need to turn from being one yourself. So first, point number one, political people sacrifice others. Political people sacrifice others. Verse one, you can look at the text with me. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. We don't know much about Portius Festus. He seems like a relatively good governor, and he helped mitigate the bandit problem in the region. But his reign was short, only a few years. He died while he was in office sometime around 62 AD. Shortly after arriving, In the province, Luke says, he decides to visit Jerusalem. It was the second capital city in his region, and it was the cultural and religious center of the Jews. Festus may be up there establishing relations and getting a lay of the land, talking with the prominent people and acquainting himself with the issues. This is a couple years. A couple years might have passed now since Paul was originally taken into custody, but apparently Paul is still very much at the forefront of the minds of the prominent Jews. Look at verse 2. It says, And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged Festus, the language here can imply a persistent or repeated petitioning, asking as a favor against Paul that Festus summon him to Jerusalem. What does it mean that they want to summon Paul to Jerusalem? Perhaps they want Festus to transfer Paul back to their jurisdiction, to turn Paul over to their judgment. It's more likely, though, that what they're asking Festus to do is to still judge Paul, but to do so in Jerusalem rather than in Caesarea. But Luke tells us, well, on the surface, this may have had the appearance of being a request simply intended to eliminate the need for people to travel to Caesarea, to make it easier for people to be present. But Luke tells us why the Jews really asked. He says that they were planning to ambush Paul during the transfer. Sound familiar? This is not the first ambush that's been planned against the apostle. However, notice that this time, it's not the 40 men who vowed to abstain from food or drink until Paul was dead and whose plot was uh, spoiled by Paul's nephew. No, this time the plotters, it says, are, quote, the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews. These are important people. As one commentator pointed out, the fact that these prominent people not only come right away to Festus about Paul, but then plan to take such extreme measures to get rid of him, reveals how big of a problem they felt Paul really was. Verse number four, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority uh, among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, about Paul, let them bring charges against him. Festus denies their request. Was it because he knew of the previous plot to take Paul's life? We're not sure. Perhaps he just didn't want to appear to be at the disposal of the Jews every every request. Festus tells them to have some men come 
and press criminal charges if there's anything criminal about Paul. They'll do this properly. So far, so good for Festus. Verse 6, after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, he took a seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. Festus is proving himself so far to be someone who gives prompt attention to Paul's case. He doesn't delay the matter. Again, so far, so good for Festus. It says he sat down on the judgment seat and sent for Paul to begin trying him. The judgment seat might have been on a raised platform, perhaps a decorated platform. And on the platform, there may have been a bench or a seat for the judge to sit on. Verse 7 says, When Paul had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against Paul that they could not prove. So Paul is standing before the platform, surrounded by his enemies. He's surrounded by Jews that are falsely accusing him. And Luke doesn't delineate the specific charges. Perhaps they were the same ones that were presented by Tertullus in the previous chapter. In Acts 24, verses 5 through 6, Tertullus, the spokesperson then, said, quote, We have found Paul a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Maybe the charges here in Acts 25 are similar. Verse 8, Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Luke doesn't elaborate on Paul's defense, but he does say that Paul denied committing any crimes. And apparently Festus, it was clear to Festus that Paul was innocent. Verse 9, but Festus, and this is where the story turns south for our governor, but Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? That's odd. Festus had already said no to the Jews' request. Why would he be changing his mind now? Well, you see, Festus has found himself stuck in a political situation similar to Felix last week. It's a difficult situation, politically speaking. He knows that Paul is innocent and that Paul should be acquitted, perhaps like Felix did. And at the same time, it's advantageous for Festus to have the Jews' favor. And for Festus, the people that were opposed to Paul are powerful people. Verse 2 said, quote, they were the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews. So Festus starts to show his true colors as a political person, as someone motivated by an interest in his own standing. He decides to try to appease the Jews. But what was the perceived benefit of moving the trial to Jerusalem. We're not sure exactly. We know the Jews wanted to ambush Paul, and we know that Felix, Festus, sorry, wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, even if he was unaware of their current plot against him. 
But maybe trying Paul in Jerusalem would have appeared beneficial to the process somehow. Maybe it seemed easier to consider potential evidence for the charges there. Or maybe Festus had even considered using the Sanhedrin somehow. They were the Jewish ruling body of the day. Maybe he thought they could be useful for counsel or could help make better sense of some of these issues. Verse 10, But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. This is where I should be, Paul says. If I'm accused of violating Roman law, then I should be tried in a Roman court. Other Jews should have no part in this. And if they were allowed a part, do you think that that would improve Paul's chances of a favorable outcome? Paul says to Festus, you know that I'm innocent of wrongdoing against the Jews. He affirms that Festus knows his innocence. And then he says in verse 11, If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. No one can give me up to them. There's an interesting wordplay in the original language here. One commentator said, quote, There is a clear wordplay between karin, which means favor in verse 9, and karisisthai, which means hand over in verse 11. So he translates the sentence like this, quote, You want to grant a favor to the Jews by granting me to them. You want to grant a favor to the Jews by granting me to them. Festus is willing to please the Jews by sacrificing Paul. He'll please the Jews at the expense of Paul's welfare, at the expense of Paul's present freedom. Festus, in his political mindedness, sacrifices immediate justice for an innocent man with an eye to his own political well-being. Political people sacrifice others. Political people sacrifice others. While things may have initially looked promising under Festus' new governorship, Paul is probably concerned. Like Felix before him, Festus's handling of the case is being influenced by his political self-interest. And Paul probably sensed that. You see, Festus recognized that Paul was innocent of any capital crimes. He knew Paul was innocent. He knew he didn't deserve to die. But instead of setting Paul free, like he should have, Festus tried keeping Paul detained even longer and moving the trial to Jerusalem. Why? Because it was politically advantageous to grant the Jews a favor. The corruption of justice in Paul's proceedings may have compelled him to do what he does next. The end of verse 11, Paul says, quote, I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. Now when we hear the word appeal, we often think of appealing a decision that has already been made by a lower court, right? But that's not what's going on here. 
As one scholar put it, I'll read to you, quote, At this point in the development of Roman practice, the institution was not the later appellatio, by which, as in modern English law, a condemned and sentenced prisoner might apply to a higher court to have a verdict or a sentence or both changed. But here what we're dealing with is what was called provocatio, which was an appeal before trial to a higher court, which would then take the whole case, trial, verdict, and sentence out of the lower court. So Paul was appealing to have his case tried in a higher court. He was not appealing to have a decision. Uh, he was not appealing a decision to a higher court. No verdict had been rendered. He was appealing to have his case go out of Festus's hands and into the emperor's court. It seems like appealing to Caesar was a right only available to Roman citizens, and so Paul may be exercising one of the benefits of his citizenship here. Why would Paul do this? Is he's got to get out of this legal mess in which the governor's political mindedness is interfering with rendering a just verdict for him. Paul may have appealed his case for other reasons too. Maybe he was leery of another en route attack given the last plot that was discovered by his nephew. And perhaps as someone suggested appealing to Caesar was a way for Paul to escape the Jews who were thirsty for his blood. Maybe. Or perhaps, as others said, since Paul was determined to go to Rome, appealing to Caesar was a way for him to get there. He knew Rome was God's will for, for him, and he was determined to go to Rome. And so maybe Paul was purchasing a ticket there through the appeals process. These are possible reasons why Paul appealed his case. There may have been others too. But the one that seems most likely to me is that Paul feared his proceedings with Festus would not be fully fair and just in light of Festus's political self-interest. And so he makes the decision to appeal his case. It's a climactic point in the narrative, and it sets the direction for the rest of the book of Acts. Verse 12, it says, Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, that was a group of officials that he could consult with, likely on legal matters, Festus answered, quote, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. After conferring with his council, Festus confirms that Paul will go to Caesar. Now we don't understand everything about how the appeals process and the Roman Empire worked at this time. But one thing that does seem to be clear is that Festus probably couldn't have prevented the appeal from going through anyway. That seems to be the case, at least. In some ways, this works out well for Festus. It takes a politically challenging case out of his hands, so to speak. Unfortunately for Paul, it means more time in Roman custody. So when we step back from the story, the picture we get of Festus is a picture of someone who values his political welfare more than righteousness. Festus was prepared to withhold immediate justice for an innocent man in order to curry favor with the Jews. Festus, just like Felix before him, was a politically-minded man. And political people, according to Luke, 
were one of the reasons that Paul's verdict was delayed. It was not because of Paul's guiltiness. He was not guilty. Political people were part of the problem. How so? Well, here we see that political people sacrifice others. They sacrifice the well-being of others for the sake of their own political welfare. Why would they do that? Very simply because their political welfare is more important to them than people. Their political welfare is more important to them than people. See, Festus' job was to maintain peace. He didn't want disruption. Disruption could spell undesirable consequences for him and reflect poorly on his leadership. Or maybe there were positive political benefits that motivated him to grant the Jews a favor instead. And perhaps you're listening to this, you say, well, it might be right to recognize Festus's political mindedness as a problem in this passage, but I don't really see how this applies to me. I'm not that kind of person. I don't hold a political office, and I'm not influenced by political motives. Is that really true? Let me ask you this. How many problems do you think are a result of you valuing your standing with others too much? How many problems do you think are a result of you valuing your standing with others too much? I'll give you two examples that came to my mind, one inside the church and one outside the church. Inside the church, I think that we often act politically when it comes to avoiding difficult conversations with people. In Galatians 6, verse 1, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. When a brother or sister in Christ is in sin, we are called to go to them in love and seek their restoration. How many times have you seen a fellow believer stumbling in sin? They're not gathering with the church. Maybe they're glorifying themselves in conversation. They're gossiping about other people. They're not serving. How often do you refrain from talking with them because you don't want it to impact the relationship you have with them? You realize that when you do that, you are sacrificing them to protect your own standing with them. You care more about your position with them than you actually care about them. Political people sacrifice others. And that's a problem. That's a problem for your brothers and sisters. See, the church is one of the primary means that God uses to restore us when we're in sin. And so if we neglect to love other people well, our brother or sister may continue in sin, which is harmful for them now and forever. Sacrificing others for the sake of our standing is incompatible with following Jesus. Outside the church, we're often political when we avoid evangelism, aren't we? Paul says in Romans 10, quote, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? That's a good question. How will they hear? How many times have you had the opportunity to talk with somebody about Jesus but kept your mouth closed? 
Why did you do that? Did you want to maintain a good standing with your family, with your colleagues? Did you not want to jeopardize the relationship that you have, that you enjoy with your friend? Again, you realize that when you do that, you are sacrificing them to protect your standing with them. You care more about your position with them than you actually care about them. Political people are willing to sacrifice others. And again, that's a big problem. That's a problem for all the poor lost people in your life that don't have the hope of the gospel. If we neglect to witness to our Savior, to our sweet Savior, to these people, these people, real people, they may perish forever in hell. Sacrificing others for the sake of our standing is 100% incompatible with following Jesus. Perhaps you are more political than you might have thought. Festus was a problem for Paul as a politically minded man. And Paul appealed his case out of Festus's hands. We have to realize that we are a problem for others when we are politically minded as well. Unfortunately, other people cannot always remove themselves from our hands. They can't appeal their situation to someone else. For other people's sake, we must stop being so political. We must learn to prize people more than our position with people. To truly prize people more than our position with them. In this passage, there's another way that Festus goes on to prove himself a politically minded person. Not only is he willing to sacrifice Paul's welfare, he's also willing to spin stories in his favor. This is something else that political people do. When you value your standing more than righteousness, advantageous perceptions become more important than accurate perceptions. Point number two, political people spin stories. Verse 13 now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. King Agrippa II was the son of Agrippa I. Remember the incident back in Acts 12 that we touched on last week? Agrippa, his father, Agrippa I, had laid violent hands on some Christians. He killed James, the brother of John, and he had put Peter in prison before the angel broke him out again. You say, yes, we just talked about that last week too, and we did. We did because Agrippa I was not only the father of Agrippa II, the king here in this passage, but he was also the father of Drusilla, who was the wife of Felix, our governor from last week. Agrippa II was Drusilla's older brother. He also had two other sisters, Mariamne and Bernice, the Bernice mentioned in this passage here. Agrippa was raised in Rome. He was educated in the emperor Claudius's court. And when Agrippa's father died, Claudius had wanted to appoint him as the ruler over his father's kingdom. However, because of Agrippa's young age, Claudius was persuaded against doing so by his advisors. Agrippa later ended up reigning over territories where mostly non-Jews lived. But he was also made responsible for the temple 
and appointing the high priest was his job. And so as one commentator pointed out, at least in that regard, Agrippa could be referred to as the king of the Jews. As the king of the Jews. Now Julia Bernice was his sister. She was a year younger than Agrippa. And like one scholar put it, if you were to go into a grocery store back then, Bernice's face would have been probably one of the faces that you would see on magazine covers sometimes as you're checking out, leaving the store. She was married three times, and there were rumors that she and her brother Agrippa had an incestuous relationship. It was also said that she was the mistress of Titus, who later became an emperor of Rome and who had apparently wanted to marry her, but didn't do so because marrying a Jewish woman was looked down upon. Agrippa and his sister Bernice show up in our story here today because they're likely on a courtesy visit to Festus. It was beneficial for them to get along well, and so perhaps they've come to establish some good relations. Verse 14, it says, As they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, before Agrippa. We're about to hear Luke's portrayal of the way that Festus discussed Paul's situation with Agrippa. Why do you think Luke would choose to recount this again here? Well, first, for one, Festus's explanation of the situation may add some details that were left out in the first narrative. However, in Festus's recounting of things, his self-exalting undertones or adjustments to the story might also highlight his self-serving character to us. So verse 14, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, quote, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. Now something smells a little fishy about this story right off the bat, doesn't it? Festus made it sound like the Jews were asking him to hand down a sentence against Paul. We didn't get that impression the first time through. See, in the initial narrative, all we learned was that the Jews were asking for Paul to be brought to Jerusalem. And perhaps, unbeknownst to Festus, they were obviously planning an ambush on the way. But let's say that Festus is telling the truth, which he might be. The way he positions himself could still come off as a little self-exalting, don't you think? Perhaps deceptively so in light of how the rest of the incident plays out. See, he may be lifting, lifting himself up here as the hero, as the one who stands for justice, right? When in reality, even if this is true, in Festus's commitment to Roman justice initially protected Paul, what do we know now? We know that Festus is not quite the champion of justice that he might like to be seen as here. But political people want to be seen in a positive light. And if not that, they at least don't want their wrongdoing known. They're more concerned about their position than they are about people having accurate perceptions of things. Perhaps Festus wanted to protect his standing. Perhaps he wanted to be perceived as an effective governor. Whatever the motive, his self-serving political priorities are influencing his storytelling. And one of the telltale signs that you're a political person 
is that you spin your stories to portray yourself in a more favorable light. You're more concerned about the potential impact on your standing than you are about truth being known. So the political man continues, verse 17. So when the Jews came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. So he takes some time to touch on, the, on his swiftness in dealing with the matter. That part is true, but any sense in which Festus is trying to portray himself as some kind of effective governor here is overshadowed by his failure to promptly set an innocent man free. Story spinning doesn't necessarily require explicit lies where you change parts of the story and add things that didn't happen. There might have been a lie about what the Jews had wanted or how Festus responded, but even if that's not a lie, Festus's inclusion of parts that spotlight his good sides may be another way to make this story work well for him. And in Festus's case, by emphasizing the good and leaving out the bad, they make him out to be better than he really is. Verse 18, he says, When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Now, here's a neat detail. We didn't catch this the first time around, so this is something that's added for us. Apparently, the topic of Jesus' resurrection came up. From Festus' standpoint, we don't know if he thought, you know, was, did he think that Paul was claiming that Jesus was alive because he had never died? Or did Festus recognize that Paul was claiming that Jesus did die and is alive because he's been resurrected? We don't know, I'm not sure, but we certainly know what Paul meant when he was talking. Verse 20, Festus says, being at a loss, how to investigate these questions? I asked whether Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. You know, conveniently, Festus leaves out the little detail about his political motivation for offering to move the trial. He doesn't mention that, and so it seems like Festus may come off a little better in his recounting of events than in Luke's first accounting of things. You know, you can spin a story well through smart selection, right? You just pick and choose the parts that work for you best. Perhaps Festus really did think that holding the trial in Jerusalem would make it easier to deal with the religious issues at hand, maybe by having the council of the Sanhedrin. But even if that's true, he chooses to mention that instead of his desiring to grant the Jews a favor. And so as a result, what do you get? You get a warped perception of Festus. But it's a perception that works better for him politically than a well-rounded perception would, right? Story spins like these may signal Festus's political-mindedness to us. His character reinforces for readers that Paul's delayed verdict was not because of his guiltiness, but in part because of political people like Festus. Verse 22, Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. 
Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So Agrippa's intrigued by the story. He wants to hear Paul now. Festus might have been happy to entertain Agrippa with Paul, but we'll see he has another reason for wanting Agrippa to hear him. Festus now had a practical problem on his hands. He needed to come up with something to write to the emperor about Paul. Verse 23 says, So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. It says they came with great pomp, so they're accompanied by some kind of fanfare or self-glorifying display, or perhaps they're donned in fashionable attire. They enter the audience hall, which was a spacious venue, likely in Herod's palace, and they were joined by other important people. It says military tribunes and the prominent men of the city enter the hall too. All to do what? To hear Paul, and specifically to examine him. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, verse 23. What a scene that must have been. All this pomp and circumstance sets the stage now for Paul's third and final defense in the book of Acts. And it's perhaps one of his greatest too, if not his greatest. We'll look at that next week. Verse, 20, uh, verse 24, it says, And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. This part of the speech again emphasized, emphasized an important part of Luke's narrative. Paul, the messenger of the gospel, was innocent. Despite the accusations he faced, despite all the fuss and hubbub about Paul, he was not a criminal deserving of death. And here he's clearly vindicated by the Roman governor Festus himself before a crowd of prominent people in the audience hall. But, verse 25, but, Festus says, I found that he had done nothing deserving of death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But, here's the quandary for Festus, I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Unreasonable might be an understatement. It is unreasonable, and perhaps that's the kind of thing that would have reflected poorly on Festus, sending a prisoner up to the emperor's court without any charges against him. So what does Festus do? He brings Paul before other prominent people and before King Agrippa to examine him with the hopes that doing so will help determine what the charges against him should be exactly. Festus is especially interested in having Paul examined by King Agrippa, who conveniently happened to be in town. Perhaps because as the king of the Jews, he expected Agrippa to be more familiar with Jewish affairs. Again, though, Festus seems to spin the story his way. Like some of the commentators talked about, Festus could be trying to blame Paul for the quandary he's in now. Verse 25 says, Festus says, quote, I found that Paul had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. 
It's almost like Festus is saying, he himself got us into this predicament. But in reality, this is all Festus' fault. He was the one that attempted to appease the Jews at the expense of justice for Paul. And that's probably what compelled Paul to appeal to Caesar in the first place. That's not as good of a story for Festus, though. So he may have chosen a different one instead. Political people spin stories. If you prize your position too much, you'll be willing to protect it at the expense of people's accurate perception. Festus' storytelling may be showing us his colors again as a politically-minded person. My application question for you is simple today. What does your storytelling reveal about you? What does your storytelling reveal about you? Think about the stories that you told people just this past week. Bring a few to your mind for a second. Were your stories tailored to paint you in a favorable light? Were they tailored to make your listeners like you more? Or maybe even to hide your wrongdoing from them? How much of the way you tell stories is impacted by the standing you want to have with people? How much? Maybe a brother or sister is asking you how your walk has been. And you talk about how consistently you've been in Scripture and prayer. But you choose not to mention that you've been impatient with your spouse lately. That's story spinning. Maybe you, you're giving a report at work and you overstate your accomplishments to your peers or to your managers. Story spinning. Maybe you add details about your thoughts in a story that improve how you appear in it. For example, maybe you'll say something like, I knew dot, dot, dot was going to happen. Well, you didn't really know it was going to happen. Or maybe you'll say something like, the whole time I was thinking dot, 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 when you weren't really thinking that. Or maybe I felt this way dot, 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 when you didn't really feel that way. After all, no one knows what was actually happening in your head at those moments, right? That's not true. Somebody does know. The story spinning. Maybe you'll tell stories in a way that focuses the blame on others and away from you. Maybe you'll talk about problems in your family or problems in your church. But the problems always have to do with other people and never really have to do with you, or at least not as much as they have to do with other people. It's story spinning. You get the picture, right? You care more about advantageous perceptions or accurate perceptions. Assuming you know the truth, story spinning is whenever you tailor your stories to suit your own political purposes. You tell the story with an eye to how it could impact your standing with others. Adding parts that work better for you, subtracting parts that don't, selecting the good pieces, making a few tweaks here and there, overemphasizing some things, underemphasizing some things. Political people spin stories. And story spinning is a problem. Honesty is important. Truth is important. They're important for our sakes, and they're important for God's glory. So in the narrative of Acts 25, Festus proves himself to be a politically-minded man. 
This political mindedness helps explain the lack of an innocent verdict for Paul. He proves himself to be a political person in two ways, sacrificing others and spinning stories. Political people sacrifice others and political people spin the stories. Which leads me to the very simple conclusion of this sermon. Followers of Jesus cannot be political people. Followers of Jesus cannot be positionally minded people. You cannot prize your standing with others more than you value people and more than you value the truth. Why? Because Jesus doesn't. Jesus loves people more than he loves a self-serving standing with them in a worldly sense. Jesus loves truth more than he loves the worldly perks of a skewed perception. And the good news is that Jesus offers freedom and change for political people like you. You and I are like Festus. We care too much about our standing with others. And we've sinned by putting our position with people over their well-being. We've sinned by spinning stories to suit our own purposes. I think if we're honest, there's more of Festus in each of us than we would like to see. Political people like Festus might get away for now, but as we heard last week, a day of judgment is coming. And on that day, the judge of all the earth will do right. Justice will be satisfied against all who delay or deny justice on this earth. Justice will be satisfied against all who sacrifice people and against all who distort the truth for the sake of their standing. So what hope is there for political people like you and me? Your only hope, your only hope is that God subjected himself to the injustice of political people like you and me. Why? To save political people like you. See, Paul's story here, it parallels the story of Jesus in many ways. I'm going to quote or paraphrase from some of the observed parallels, but one of the commentators noted between them, between Luke's account of Jesus and his gospel and his account of Paul in the book of Acts. See, like Paul, Jesus, God in the flesh, was brought before a Roman governor. Like Paul, Jesus was falsely accused by the Jewish people, the very people that God had marked out for the promises of revelation and salvation. Like Paul, Jesus' innocence was recognized by the Roman governor. Like Paul, Jesus was not released despite his innocence. Like Paul, Jesus was then sent to a Herodian ruler who happened to be in town and one who personally desired to see him. Like Paul, the Jews sought the death sentence against Jesus. Like Paul, Jesus' governor acted out of self-interest. But unlike Paul, Jesus did not escape death in his trial. The politically-minded Pilate handed Jesus over to the Jews to be crucified. An innocent man executed on a Roman cross. He was 
literally sacrificed by a political person. But just as with Paul, God in his providence was using the sin of political people to accomplish his purposes. God used Paul's custody to bear witness before rulers and to get Paul to Rome. God used Jesus' death to pay the penalty for your sin, to pay for the sins of political people like you. So that when that judgment day comes, you can stand before God and be pronounced not guilty because Jesus took the fall for you on the cross. And just like Paul asserted before Festus in verse 9, this Je- or verse 19, sorry, this Jesus who was dead is in fact alive. God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day. And in raising Jesus, he gave life to all who are one with him. That includes you, if Jesus is your Savior. Your political self dies with Jesus. Your position-mindedness is crucified with him on the cross. And then you rise with him from the grave, a new person. A person who loves people and who loves truth. Be forgiven and freed from your sin today. Be forgiven and freed from your sin in him. Jesus can save you from being a political person. He can save you from the judgment you deserve for it. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can learn to walk as Jesus did. See, Christ saves all who turn from their sinful and political life to righteousness. Leave it behind. Run from that way of life this morning. Turn to Jesus. He saves all who rely on him to rescue him. Apart from Jesus, when you and I look in the mirror, we see a Festus looking back at us. We value our standing relative to others too much. The profile is incompatible with the profile of a Christian. Followers of Jesus are like Jesus. If you're going to be like Jesus, you cannot be positionally minded. Nor should you want to be. For your own sake, for the sake of others, and for the sake of your King's glory. And praise God that because Jesus suffered at the hands of a political man just like Festus, you and I can be set free from being one ourselves. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would do just that for us, that you would set us free from being political people like Festus. Forgive us, Lord, for the innumerable times that we have prized our standing with people more than people and more than truth. Please, Father, put that idol to death in our hearts. Cause us to be like you, Jesus. Put to death our political self and raise us to life to be people that care about others and that care about truth. Please, Lord, do this for your glory in us. Do this for the sake of those around us. Let us walk in love and let us speak the truth for their sake, for our sake, and for your glory we pray. It's in your name. Amen.